If you will, turn in your Bibles to the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John as we continue our study through the Word. Now you'll remember how last time we had seen John the Baptist was baptizing simultaneously to Jesus. Jesus had departed from his conversation with Nicodemus there in Jerusalem and he comes down to the Jordan River nearby where John the Baptist has been baptizing. And for a period of time, both ministries are, are there conducting baptisms in the Jordan River. And you'll remember that John's disciples came to him and they had had a skirmish which, with, with the Jews over the issue of purification. And, but the issue becomes now in the hearts of John's disciples is that Jesus's crowd is now getting bigger than John's crowd. And, and, and this was upsetting now to the, the disciples of John. And, and you'll remember that John points everyone to the Lord. He says, nothing can be given unto him unless it is given by the Father. Ministry rises and falls by the blessing of God, the callings of God in a person's life. And, and John says, I, my job was to be the forerunner, was to point everybody to him. And, and you will remember that he said that I have the joy of, uh, of the friend of the bridegroom, that when the bridegroom is there, the preparation work and, and all that the friend of the bridegroom had been responsible for is, is done now. And they can enter into the, the joy and the celebration of the, of the wedding itself. John's work of preparing the people for the Messiah had been accomplished. And, and he says, I must decrease that he may increase. And and so we see John in his ministry there at the Jordan River continuing to point everybody to Christ. As we come to this fourth chapter now, we're going to see that Jesus is going to depart from that region of Judea and he's going to head back to Galilee. But there is a, a woman that is there in Samaria that... Jesus is going to minister to and and we are going to to see her broken life as it comes into contact with the author of life and so chapter 4 the gospel of John verse 1 therefore when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples. We, you remember how back in chapter 1, when John the Baptist was baptizing there in the River Jordan, how the priests and Levites for Jerusalem from Jerusalem were sent down to the Jordan, and, and we are told that it was the Pharisees that had and sent them down. We see that they had been uh, watching over the ministry of John the Baptist and, 
and now suddenly they are hearing reports about Jesus uh, and his disciples now baptizing people in the Jordan River and that they're baptizing even more people now than than John the Baptist. John here is careful to let us know that Jesus himself was not doing the actual baptizing in the water. Jesus was preaching about the kingdom of God and and his disciples were the ones that were actually baptizing. But here we see that he leaves uh, Judea and he departs to head up to Galilee. Now Galilee is in the northern section of Israel and, and so they are going to depart and they are going to uh, head up to Galilee. Galilee is really there and around the Sea of Galilee in particular was was really the the home base of Jesus' ministry and operation. And so he departs now and heads on towards Galilee. It says in verse 3, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. Now, Judea is uh, more in the central area of uh, Israel, and Galilee is north. And, and if you were going to go from Jerusalem or Judea, and you were going to head to Galilee, you could really go three different directions. You, you could head out to the coast and go up the Mediterranean. You could go through the, 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 the Transjordan, you could cross over the Jordan River and head up around Samaria, or you could go straight through Samaria. Now, going straight through Samaria was the shortest, the most direct route that there was, but Samaria was avoided by the Jews, by the Orthodox Jews. There was a, a long-standing, a deep-seated hatred uh, between them and the Samaritans. Now, who are the, the Samaritans? You will remember that the Assyrians uh, came in and, uh, and conquered the ten northern tribes. The, the nation of Israel had split into the northern and the southern kingdoms. The, the northern ten tribes, Assyria came in and, and conquers them. Now, what Assyria did with their captives was that they would take them out of the land, a certain majority of the people out of the land and they would go and and spread them out throughout their kingdom and they would take people from the other kingdoms that they had conquered and they would repopulate uh, them and so the area of Samaria was repopulated with people from all over who the Assyrians uh, had now conquered these People groups that were all mixed together now began to marry and to intermarry. And you remember that the, the Jews were not to marry outside of uh, Jews. And, and here we see that the Samaritans become this, this mixed multitude, this people group now that did not keep the Jewish line uh, perfect. And and so to the Jews uh, who lived in the southern kingdom, this, 
mixed breed of, of Jews that were known as the Samaritans. This was a group that they looked down upon. And, and so the Orthodox Jews, they wouldn't even travel through Samaria. They would go around Samaria, cross over the Jordan River and go by it and cross back over rather than go through Samaria. But here we see that Jesus now is going to go through Samaria. And it says in verse 5 that he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. So the village of Sychar was near Shechem, and, and the word Shechem now or the word Sychar, means uh, a town of drunkards uh, or a town of liars. Uh, So Sychar is is a place that doesn't have a great reputation. I mean, it's a place that's known uh, for liars. Can you imagine a, a city or a town that has a reputation for con men and swindlers and and that you need to be careful when you're in that town that you don't get caught up in in a racket and it was also known as a town of drunkards means it's a town of partiers so a place where people would come to party but you needed to be careful uh, because there's a lot of con men that are there in that city so interesting here the reputation of the the town of Sychar it says that it was near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And, uh, and so we see that this story is contained for us back in Genesis chapter uh, 48. Jacob had uh, bequeathed the section of land to Joseph, which he had purchased from the sons of Hamar. And so when the Jews returned from Egypt, they buried Joseph's bones there in the land at Shechem, Uh, And that area became now the inheritance of Joseph's descendants. It says in verse 6, now Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. And so it is noontime. The sixth hour is noon. and, And here we see that Jesus is wearied from his journey we see that Jesus now experiences the full range of his humanity. He experiences thirst and weariness and pain and discomfort and hunger. And, and so here we see that, that he is sitting now next to the, the well. Jesus entered into the, the normal experiences of life and he is able to identify Uh, with us in in each of them. He genuinely submitted now to our human limitations. And and so Jesus knows what it's like to be hot and thirsty and tired. And and this is the situation that we find him. It's the middle of the day. He's weary and he is thirsty and And it says in verse 7, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. 
here we see that this woman comes now to the well. She's expecting that no one would be there. She is coming at a, a unique time. It is the middle of the day. The women would draw water early in the mornings and then they would draw water again in the evenings. And, and so for this woman to be coming now in the middle of the day is, is in and of itself unusual. It is also unusual that she came by herself. Most of the time, the women would come together in groups. It was a, a social time, a, a time to come and to share the events of the day and to talk with one another and to fellowship. And so it was a very social activity. For her to be coming in the heat of the day by herself is, is something to be observed. And and as she comes, as she approaches, she sees that, the, that there is somebody at the well. And as she gets closer, she discerns that it's a man. And then ultimately, she discerns now that it is a Jewish man. And so she comes, and, and she is about her business of drawing the water. And, and now suddenly, Jesus speaks to her. Give me a drink, he says to her. It was unusual for a Jewish person of that time to ask a favor or to accept a, a drink from a Samaritan's cup. And, and so Jesus' request generally surprised uh, this woman. John adds that his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Jesus didn't ask his disciples to get water because they were gone now into Sychar to bring the provisions back. And then the woman of Samaria, verse 9, said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. The woman was impressed by the friendliness of Jesus. This was probably the first time that she had ever heard a kind greeting from a Jewish man in her entire life. The Jews looked down with great contempt upon the Samaritans. They were so bigoted towards the, <laughs> the Samaritans. They thought themselves to be superior, to be better, and, and so the Samaritans were always judged with contempt now, just for who they were by the Jews. It is a painful thing to be looked down upon, to be judged with contempt for the, the, the association that you have by nationality, by color of skin, by color of eyes, by, by any of the reasons that people will look down upon you without ever even knowing who you are or knowing anything about you, or knowing your story. 
But the Jews, they had nothing to do with the Samaritans. And, and so here is this woman and she sees that there is someone at the well and then she sees that it's a man and it's a Jewish man. And she is expecting the same disdain that the Jewish men had, not only for the Samaritans, but also for her being a woman at the same time. And when Jesus now speaks to her kindly, she is surprised uh, by that. The fact that John adds that the Jews have no dealing with the Samaritans is information was for the benefit now of the Gentile readers. And, and the phrase now, for Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans, could, could also be translated, asks no favor from the Samaritans, or would use no vessels in common with the Samaritans. A rabbinic law, to show you how far the hatred went, a rabbinic law of A.D. 66 stated that Samaritan women were considered as continually menstruating and thus unclean. And therefore, a Jew who drank from a Samaritan woman's vessel would become ceremonially unclean themselves. And so, why would Jesus, then a Jew, want to use this polluted vessel to get a drink of of water. How is it that you, she says, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? And Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And so, if you knew two things, Jesus says to her, if you, if you knew two things, number one, the gift of God, the gift of God's love, the gift of God's redemption, the gift of salvation and reconciliation, if, if you knew how much God loves you and the love that God has for you, and, and secondly, if you knew who it was who says to you, give me a drink, then you would have turned around and asked uh, me to be given living water. Living water has really two different connotations. Li living water means running water. Water was a huge issue in Israel. And because they didn't have running water like the modern conveniences that we have today, water either came out of springs and wells and, and streams, this all being fresh living water, or it came out of a cistern. Now, a cistern was a method that they used to be able to capture rainwater. The ground is hard and, and it is crusted over in the dry, arid areas. And, and so they would take the runoffs and they would build their channels to, to direct the water. They would build these 
pits and then they would put clay around and plaster on the inside and they would make these giant storage containers and they would direct the rainwater into these storage containers and, and then this would be a place that you would draw water from. But the water that came out of cisterns, it was sitting there. And so it was not the same as fresh water, moving water, living water. And, and so living water as compared to stale, stagnant water that was trapped into cisterns. But living water also has another connotation. And, and the connotation that we have is, is the Holy Spirit is this living water and and this being a concept that we see throughout the Old Testament in Jeremiah chapter 2 it says for my people have committed two evils they have forsaken me the fountain of living waters and hewn themselves cisterns broken cisterns that can hold no water and and so the Holy Spirit they have forsaken me the fountain of uh, of living waters and Psalm 42, it says that as the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And when shall I come and appear before God? And so this thirst for God and this living water, fountains of living water that meets the the soul's thirst to know God and to draw near to God and to enter into that intimate relationship. There is a thirst in the soul of man that God plants in every single person's heart. And, and this thirst for God can be quenched by, by nothing else. We can try and fill it with everything else that the world has to offer and and yet that thirst can only be quenched by, by the living water, by the Holy Spirit, by the intimacy, communion, and fellowship with God that we were created to enter into. You were created by God to enter into communion and relationship, to have a, a healthy, secure, attached relationship with God. And, and when we are in, 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 in connection and communion with God like that, the flow of this living water, of fountains of living water springing up with, within our souls, within our hearts, like a, like a well-refreshed person. This is the picture now. And, and Jesus says that if you knew who it was that you were talking to, you suddenly now would have been much more concerned not with the water that is contained with this well, but the living water that I have to be able to offer to you. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? She rationalizes that the well is deep, and he's sitting there, and he has nothing to be able to draw the water out. And, and so she asks the question, then, where, where then do you get that living water? You, 
You'll remember just like Nicodemus when Jesus had had that conversation with Nicodemus and, and he says that you have to be born again. And, and Nicodemus then asks the question, how can a person be born a second time? He, he doesn't understand that Jesus is talking about the spiritual realm and, and confuses and thinks that Jesus is talking about the physical realm. When Jesus is talking to her about this living water, she thinks that he's talking about the physical realm, but Jesus is talking about the spiritual realm. And so... Now she begins to wonder if Jesus has access to some source of water other than the, the water here at, at Jacob's well. And, and now as Jesus has kind of spoken to her in a riddle, has aroused her curiosity. If you knew who you were talking to, she doesn't know who she's talking to. But now she begins to probe his identity. Verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? Here we see that she is claiming to be a descendant of Jacob and Jacob through Joseph, through Ephraim would have been the chain. And when she does not realize, uh, what she doesn't realize is that Jesus was before Jacob. And in fact, that Jesus is Jacob's God. Are you greater than our father Jacob and Jacob's God? is the one that is standing there talking to her. In the original Greek, it expects a negative answer. In, in other words, you certainly are not saying that you're greater than Jacob. In verse 13, but Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The water that was in the well would certainly satisfy one's bodily thirst, but only for a time. If you drink of... This water you will thirst again. If you drink of the world, you will thirst again. The world is never able to satisfy that, that spiritual longing, that spiritual thirst for God. It can distract us for a moment, for a season, for a time, but the drawing of God upon a man's soul will will continue it will return but the water that jesus offers quenches that spiritual thirst so completely that that we will never be thirsty again jesus water continually satisfies the desire for god's presence and what is that that is the implantation now of the 
Holy Spirit of God dwelling inside of us, the intimacy and the communion and the attachment to God that we so desperately long for, whether we can identify that longing or not is is there and it is only satisfied once a person has accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior their sin is removed and and they become connected to God and the Holy Spirit is now placed inside of a man's soul and now becomes a, a spring of of living water welling up and that gushing up in eternal life And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Jesus had told her back in verse 10, if she asked uh, that he would give her this water, and here we see that she asks. There is that asking. There is the inviting of God into our heart, into our life. We can know about God's gift, but we have to ask for it. We have to invite God into our heart, into our life. And here we see that she says, here, Lord, give me this water that you are talking about, that that I may not thirst, nor come here to, to draw. She doesn't completely understand at all what she is asking for. She understands that if she had a spring, she wouldn't get thirsty, and, and she wouldn't have to work so hard. Obtaining water was hard work. It required trips to the well twice a day and carrying heavy jars full of water home. And so she hears that Jesus has the answer to her problems in her life. And, and so she is asking now, but not fully understanding how radical God wants to change our lives. And Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And so as this woman fails to understand the nature of the living water that he offered Jesus and turns the dialogue to focus now on her real need, on her spiritual condition. Why wasn't she able to understand the things that Jesus was talking to her about? In 1 Corinthians Chapter 2, verse 14, it says, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Here we see that Jesus is speaking to her in spiritual terms about her desperate hunger for God, and she doesn't comprehend what Jesus is saying. And so Jesus now has been talking to her about spiritual things she can't understand, and Jesus now is going to talk to her about her life, about the physical things that she completely can understand. And so Jesus says to her, Go call your husband. And the woman answered and said, I, I have no husband. I have 
no husband. I wonder how she said that. How did she answer Jesus? What was the, the tone of her voice? Was it sadness? And Jesus says, call your husband. She says, I have no husband. Or was it despair? I have no husband. <laughs> was it shame? Did she hang her head? I have no husband. Or did she say it in frustration? I have no husband. I have no husband. We see that Jesus touched on the, the pain, the open wound in this woman's life, the loneliness, the, the brokenness that she carried with her and the desperate desire that she had in her to love and to be loved. And so he, he says, call, call your husband and I don't have a husband. I don't have a husband. And Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband for you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband in that you spoke truly. We see here that she is divorced five times. Five times. And now she's in another relationship. She's in her sixth relationship now. And, and here we see the, the brokenness that is in this woman's life. God gave us the covenant of marriage to be able to take a man and a woman and to connect them together into this secure, attached relationship, the, the covenant of marriage. And, and from there we see it becomes now the nucleus of a, of a new life. Two single people set apart their singleness. They die to themselves and, and they are now to serve one another, to intertwine their lives, to be connected, to be intimately latched uh, together in this communion called the covenant of, of marriage. We see that, that this woman went to the altar and she got married the first time. She, she attracts a, a, a man. He asks her to become his wife. And, and they start that journey of, of marriage together. But she is not able to ever get to that secure, attached uh, relationship and and we have no history of any of these relationships. Was it that she kept running away from the marriages? Did she feel closed and confined and controlled? And, and while she wanted to be loved, she felt suffocated and, and so would, would end up undermining the relationship or... 
or was she involved with, with men that didn't love her, that couldn't connect with her, that were relationally isolated, emotionally unavailable, or abusive, or mean, or, or cruel? The Bible doesn't tell us the, the manifestations of the brokenness her and her first husband, but they got to a point where, where they divorced and they ended. And she moved on. But she hadn't given up on the institution of marriage. She still held on to that dream of loving and being loved. And, and so another man enters her life and, and once again she is able to attract a a man. She's able to build a relationship with the man. They court. They get to the point where this man wants her to, to be his wife and she wants him to be her husband. And, and now they go and, and once again to the altar and they get married. And, and now she begins her second attempt at trying to build a successful marital relationship, a secure, a, attached relationship where there is the free-flowing of love and intimacy and trust. And, and once again, we see that, that this relationship is not healthy. It does not get stability into it. She cannot find the love that she is so desperately wanting and seeking. And so once again, it, it ends in divorce. But she doesn't quit. She doesn't quit on the institution of marriage. And, and once again, she is able to attract men. This woman is able to attract men. And she is able to have a courtship that is successful. Five times she attracts a, a man and ends up in a successful courtship that leads ultimately to, to the altar. But five times they were not able to build that relationship. And now here she is, the sixth man. And now she's just living with him. And so she has now, desperate to be loved, is in a state of, uh, of sin, living with this husband, living with this man. And that's, when Jesus finds her. I want you to know that, that being divorced five times is, is nothing that, that, that only happened in Jesus' day. People trying to, to court and, and then get married and try to build that successful marriage relationship that secure attached uh, relationship. And, and when it fails, they, they try again and again and again. We, we see in the headlines, the celebrities and the, the marriages. And 
And the number of times that different celebrities have, have done the exact same thing of this woman here at the well. Christy Brinkley and Joan Collins and Liza Minnelli, all of them divorced four times. We see that Danielle Steele, the famous romance novelist who made a career out of writing romance relationship novels, divorced five times herself. What she wrote about, she was never able to successfully build in her own life. Larry King, the famous radio host, divorced six times. Elizabeth Taylor divorced seven times. Actress Lana Turner divorced eight times. And so we, we see the souls hungering and thirsting to be loved, to know and be known, and, and to build that secure, attached relationship. And, and yet we see broken lives, broken hearts, and and wounded people, sin, wounds and people. And so here we have the, the Savior of the world standing before this broken woman. And now he begins to, to minister to her. He tells her now that the one whom you have now is not your, your husband and and so Jesus revealed that he's aware of her history and who she is. He revealed her pain and her need for salvation. You see, God's desire for you is to, to have a secure, attached relationship. First with him, and then to build secure, attached relationships with, with others. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Here we see that she declares that, uh, that now you, you are a prophet. And saying this, woman acknowledged the truthfulness of Jesus' remarks. And immediately she changes the subject and focuses on the difference between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Samaritan religion held that, that the place to worship was on Mount Gerizim, the Jews, uh, Mount Zion, in Jerusalem. And so she brings up a political hot potato religious topic and shifts it off of her off of herself it is much more comfortable to discuss religion than it is to deal with our own sins to deal with our own hearts to deal with our own lives and Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. And we know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. The hour is coming 
when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the, the Father. He's talking about the new covenant, the church. That there is no longer going to be one place where the world comes together to gather. Where we worship is not nearly as important in the new covenant. <laughs> but, he says, you worship what you do not know. The Samaritan religion was confused and in error. And we know what we worship. Salvation is of the Jews. You see, the Samaritans were not the vehicle for the salvation of mankind. Israel was and is the nation chosen by God uh, through whom the Messiah is going to come. He says in verse 23, But the hour is coming and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. He says the, the hour is coming and now is. The, the coming of the Messiah uh, had actually come now. And the Messiah is standing in, in front of her. And God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. To worship in spirit, what does that mean? It means that, that you are concerned with the spiritual realities. And to worship in truth means that you worship according to the, the counsel of God's word. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. The, Samarit the Samaritans expected a, a messianic leader. But they did not expect the Messiah to be the anointed king out of the Davidic line. And so... They expected more of a, a Moses-like figure who would rise up and would solve all of their problems. And, and here, what does she say? She says, I, I know that the Messiah is coming. I know that the Messiah is coming. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Literally, he says, I am the one speaking to you. Jesus had avoided telling the Jews directly that he is the Messiah. But here at Jacob's well, he told this Samaritan woman that he, the one who sat there with her, was the promised Messiah. And though this Woman was a broken sinner. Jesus revealed himself to her. And Jesus continues to reveal himself to broken sinners. As we close our study here at verse 26, I want to draw our attention for a moment back to verse 19. Back, 
Back to where the woman said now to Jesus, Sir, I perceive that, that you are a prophet. Who is Jesus? What was this woman's perception of Jesus? She per first perceived that, that he was a man as she comes up to the well and sees that there is somebody at the well from a distance. He is just a figure. Is it a man or a woman? First question. And, and as she comes closer and closer to Jesus, she perceives that, that this is a man. And as she gets closer and closer now, she is able to perceive by his dress and by his appearance that he is Jewish. And so she perceives now that he is a Jewish man. As they continue in their dialogue and in their conversation, we see that she recognizes that this is no ordinary man. She may have recognized that he was a rabbi, a teacher, and, and so that may have been another perception. The word to perceive means to become aware of or conscious of, to come to realize or to come to understand, to become cognizant of, to become conscious of. But when Jesus now reveals her history to her, she now becomes aware, she becomes cognizant that, that this is no ordinary man. And she perceives now that he's a prophet has the power of God now to be able to, to know things that, that he should not have had any way of knowing about her. And yet Jesus is so much more than a man. And Jesus is so much more than a rabbi. So much more than a prophet. He is God himself. And Jesus looked upon this broken woman's life, seeing her desperate desire for intimacy, for love, for communion, for fellowship. All of the things that God created man to experience and to enjoy. You remember that that when God made Eve and gave her to man, that he said that it is not good for man to be alone. And that there is a companionship and a unity and fellowship that, that marriage brings about that, that also is experienced now a oneness of, of soul and spirit to, that we experience with God. We were created to know God, to be loved by God, to receive 
that love. And to love in return. To truly be connected to God. And to have that secure, attached relationship, one that is built upon trust and intimacy and transparency and authenticity, to, to be able to share every part of our life, our soul, our hurts, our experiences, our history, our, our story, to be known and to know that we are loved in the fullness of, of who we are. And then to, to have the revelation of God, of himself to us and to know God. To know God. To know his story, his personality, his history. And, and to dream about our future together and he unfolds our, our future together. To be intertwined, to be safe, to be secure, to feel his embrace, to feel his love. Not that, that we are in a relationship with God that is far away from us, that we don't even know, that, that we are afraid of and, and just don't want to go to hell and, and, and we want to go to heaven. Because heaven's a wonderful place. Do you want to go to heaven because... Heaven is a wonderful place or because you will experience the intimacy, fellowship, and communion with, with God. You see, heaven is that place where we will be connected fully, totally, and completely where we're going to know as we're known by Him. And it is the place now where our soul will find rest completeness and wholeness. A beautiful invitation into that restored fellowship that was lost at the fall, but that is regained through our forgiveness of sins in Christ, but will be experienced in its fullness when we come into His presence and dwell there forever. God's desire is that we would have healthy, secure, attached marriages, that, that our wounds, and our scars, and our brokenness, that, that all of them have healing in Christ. And God wants our marriages, Christian marriages, to be the healthiest, to be reflective of the communion that we are to have with him. And he desires to be able to remove the, the barriers, the blocks, the things that stumble us and frustrate us and keep us from, from getting to the, the place that God wants us to be in our marriages. You see, the world is watching. And Jesus said that you'll know that you're my disciples by the love that you have one for another, the ability to have healthy marriages, the ability to have secure, attached relationships, first with God and then with one another. 
That is God's desire for you and, and for me. And so may we continue to, to grow. May we continue to understand the, the marriage covenant, the reflection that it is of the eternal relationship with God that we experience on a human level here upon this earth. May Christ be the center of our marriages. May he heal us and help us. And may we continue to grow and experience the fullness of God's love in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask God that you would continue to do a mighty work in each and every one of us. Lord, bless us. Help us to continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of you. We pray, Lord, for our scars and our brokenness, Lord, that, that just like this woman who was functioning outwardly, but inwardly she was hurting so much, that, God, you would come and minister just as you met her and her need, that you would meet us in, in our needs. Heartache broken people ruined lives or why you died at calvary your touch is what we long for so lord would you touch us today and every wounded broken area of our life would you lead us into health would you give us lord the refreshing filling of your spirit today and may we truly grow in our capacity and our abilities to be able to love you and to love others. And it's in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen.